turn that on. And I want to invite uh, Reverend Matthew to, uh, to, to get things rolling for us. I'll put these sticky pads up here. Okay. Well, I'll try to get things rolling a little bit. Can everyone see me when I sit down? Is it better if I'm standing? It's kind of nice. It is better? All right, I'll stand. So the, qu- the question is, what can we know historically about Jesus, if anything? And if we can, how do we, how do we get to that information? Uh, last week, we looked at the two canons of Scripture, Christian and Jewish Scripture, and specifically, we began talking about the four Gospels, which are accounts, sort of stylized accounts of the life of Jesus. So those four counts all come from a faith perspective. They're written by Christians, people who are consciously Christian at this point. So they're writing with a certain theological orientation. Um, so when we read those, they're not windows into you know, eyewitness reporting on events that happened. Their faith-based reflections on the life of Jesus. What I want to do, I think, is maybe, well, that's way back there. That's going to be I know, exactly We'll see how it works. Um, did, did, you, did you say Jesus? Is that what I heard? Jesus. I think we should have a class and discover when do people say, oh, my God. And, and when, when do they, they say, say, Jesus? Jesus. <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so one thing I want to say is, Stop me at any point if I'm assuming information or knowledge, because often I'll just be talking on a tangent with something that makes sense to me, but you might not have the background. So just say, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, The four Gospels, I'm going to just write the dates down back here. I'll try to write large. So we talked last week about the year 70, that this is when the Jewish temple was destroyed. the Christian Gospels don't come with dates appended. They don't say, you know, written such and such. But what scholars have tried to surmise are rough dates, uh, estimates for these based on what's present in the text. Matthew's Gospel has references to, um, references that can be inferred uh, to the destruction of the Jewish temple. And sometimes they're sort of uh, couched in uh, prophetic utterances on the part of Jesus. You know, him saying something about the destruction of the temple. And scholars assume that this isn't actually a prophecy. This is after the fact. Um, Jesus, you know, the community is trying to make sense of the destruction, so there are words attributed to Jesus relating to it. So that's where a bit of scholarly skepticism that comes in that's used for establishing the dates. There's a reference in Mark's Gospel, and Susanna, I may look to you at some points to <laughs> jump in here. Mark's Gospel talks about the, uh, the, the, abominate, the sacrilege of abomination, or the de- desecrating sacrilege, that's also referenced, I think, that phrase shows up in some of the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. But it's uh, a reference to a desecrating sacrilege being set up in the temple. And it's thought that this is a reference to the emperor putting, a, installing a statue of Jupiter, I think, in the Jerusalem temple at some Hadrian. point. Hadrian. Hadrian. Do you know Hadrian's date? Yeah. 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 Hadrian's Wall is like 116, so he's he's early second century Hadrian. Okay. So that's so that wouldn't be what they're thinking is referenced in Mark's Gospel. Anyway, references to the destruction. So people think the Gospels are starting to be compiled in the 60s. We get the first Gospel sometime around 70, and that's Mark. 
Uh, scholars have debated how the Gospels are dependent on one another. What's the literary relationship between these four accounts? And the dominant hypothesis is one of um, Mark and what supremacy, or so it's, it's the first gospel, and then you get Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, and they're roughly again dated. Sometimes folks will say Matthew's perhaps around 85, and Luke is 90 or later. Sometimes it's pushed up to 100. But when scholars started looking at these from a critical literary perspective, they started saying, hey, Mark is embedded in Matthew and Luke. And so you can, you can find where Mark has been woven in um, in different ways into these two. So if you cut out the Mark material, then you've got two other sections of material that, that are, are shared and not shared. The first one, scholars have called Q. This is material that, again, overlaps in Matthew and Luke. And it's called Q from the German Quell for source. So a source document, Q. And it was theorized that this was a sayings gospel, that this was more or less just a collection of teachings of Jesus that were being circulated in the early Christian communities. And then finally, there's what's called special Matthew and special Luke. And that's material that's unique to each of those communities. Um, John's Gospel comes in later, maybe around 100, and we talked a bit about that last week too, that it's much more a theological reflection on the meaning of Jesus for the early Christian community than it is a, an historical recording. Um, this is where a lot of the sort of high Christological or Messiah um, language for Jesus comes into play. Uh, he's referred to as the light of the world and the way, the truth, and the life. And this is all very unique to this later gospel Which is John. John. So, <clears throat> the question is, what can we know historically about Jesus from this? And someone raised the question a couple weeks ago, was there even an historical Jesus? Um, there are a few sort of fringe scholars who try to make a case that there was no historical Jesus. Uh, the main line of scholarship says, yes, there was an historical rabbi um, that these accounts are based on, and they differ as to how much we can know about him. And Jonathan and I were talking about this, and, and can you say what you said? Oh, well, I feel the same way about, you know, this. a lot of scholarship say Moses didn't really exist, or King David didn't really exist. And my feeling about it always is, why not? You know, why, why wouldn't you assume there was a personage about whom these, these uh, stories. stories were developed. You know, but so, so, so therefore, I my working assumption is there was a guy named Jesus, which is, by the way, Joshua right. in Hebrew. Just as much as there was a Hillel and a Gamaliel and, you know, right. why, not, why not a Jesus, a, a Yeshua or a Joshua? Even though Jesus then over, and if Jesus died in the year 30-ish, then by the year 70, it's already stories about this personage and impossible to actually tell what happened or what has become the story. It doesn't take 40 years. It doesn't take 40 years, that's right. Sometimes I go to a funeral and I hear stuff. Did you hear what Diane said? She said sometimes she goes to a funeral and she hears made-up stories about someone. It doesn't take 40 years. Pauline. I, I just had a question about the Gospels. 
when these gospels were written at these different times, was there an intent? I don't know if there's, it's known to to that that each one was then going to become the gospel. Well, for the community that was writing it, initially these these communities weren't necessarily in direct communication. So you know. Miles and miles over that way, there's a Christian community forming, and miles and miles over that way, there's a Christian community forming. And there's oral tradition circulating about stories and sayings of Jesus. Each community is compiling its own collections to use. It's um, like the Hasidics, mm-hmm. almost different Hasidic communities that, that had followings of... You know, the and different interpretations different, of the Baal Shem Tov, right, 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 based on the quality mm-hmm. of that community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that helps explain. Uh, I, I once asked a Christian scholar that question, how do we know Jesus existed? And he said that the writings of Josephus yes. came so soon after Jesus was supposed to live, and that well, that doesn't prove it. Yeah. Repeat that, please. Yeah. Uh, so I'll repeat what she said. And then tell people who Josephus, Josephus is. Josephus or Josephus. Josephus was an early uh, Jewish scholar, roughly contemporaneous with he, Jesus. No, he fought in the rebellion against Rome. Okay. His writings so, are late first century. Late first century, okay. When would, do we know when he would have been born? Would he have been born around the time Jesus died? Mm, perhaps. Okay, so um, late first century, Jesus is early first century. Uh, he was essentially a, a Roman sympathizer who was recording Jewish history uh, in a way that was sympathetic to Rome. Uh, in his writings, he refers to John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who uh, is connected to Jesus in the, at the beginning of all four of the Gospels. John was a sort of an ascetic prophet fil- uh, figure out in the wilderness preaching repentance and offering a, an early form of baptism in the River Jordan. Um, Jesus, it seems, we'll, we'll get into this, but uh, apprenticed himself or discipled himself at some point to John before he then began his own preaching mission. Um, Josephus mentions both John the Baptist and Jesus. The passage that's preserved in Josephus referencing Jesus is actually corrupted by later Christian um, copyists. So it says... Um, then came a man in Nazareth named Jesus. He was the Messiah. <laughs> and um, what scholars have done, they've taken that passage, which they think is an originally authentic passage, that then a Christian copyist, you know, put little marginal notes in that became part of the text. So you can pull out the things that are obviously Christian-like apologetic, and you get a kernel of of you know, reconstructed Josephus. So it's just one, because I had thought there was two mentions, one, the early one, and then another one in Josephus that was put in by the monks. Okay. Is that, there two that's different on, I, I, I do think there are two references. So maybe one of them is more developed in that way. Matthew, can I interject? So if you have heard of Josephus, anyone who loves history, Josephus is the extra... Jewish, he's Jewish, but he's writing for a Roman audience. And Josephus is the source we have for understanding uh, the history of first century Judaism and what was broadcast to the Roman Empire. So historians rely on him heavily. Uh, sometimes he has a tall tale that he tells, but he also has a lot of factual stuff in it. So he also, we also know a lot about first century Judaism. 
For instance, he describes as the different sects of Judaism at the time. And we'll look at that a little bit from, from Josephus. Um, yeah, please. Aren't there other cultures that you can ask Israel that have a, a being that is born of a virgin mother and resurrected? Sure. So, well, that's... so. Yes, these are common folkloric motifs that exist across various cultures um, and of little relevance for conversation around the historical Jesus. When we look at what we can know historically about Jesus, most scholars would say that, you know, starting with Mark's gospel, the first event in the gospel, according to Mark, is Jesus' baptism by John. That's the opening of the gospel. Um, the other gospels that come later, Mark and... Um, Matthew and Luke, they then give birth narratives for Jesus that are operating with, again, folklore motifs, you know, that were common kind of tropes in the culture for figures of importance. Um, so the birth narratives are probably of little relevance in discussion about what we can know historically about Jesus. And what I said at the beginning of the class is over the next three classes, we will be moving into that territory. Yeah. Today we're talking about what we might know historically. And the virgin birth and those stories we're not considering as historical. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you, you, you said that um, in Mark they talk about Jesus being baptized by John. Mm -hmm. It's why, okay, we'll repeat the question. Why would Jesus, if he was Jewish, want to be baptized? So, so John you have was... have to repeat the question. Why would Jesus, if he was Jewish, want to be baptized by John? John was essentially a sort of revitalization movement founder within Judaism who was calling the Jewish people, his own people, to a, a more committed form of Jewish life and a, a call to repentance. So he was saying, repent, perhaps come out from under Rome, come out into the Jordan, be baptized. Um, Jesus was apparently inspired by this preaching and went out with the droves, the many who were going out to John in the wilderness. What did baptized mean? Where does that word come from? Great question. I mean, is it like the mikvah? It's like a mikvah. It is. It's, it's it, exactly mikvah. Exactly like mikvah. Exactly. It's the, the Greek way, word. It's the Greek word for mikvah. Right. The way John is using or developing the ritual is a bit new in the tradition. Perhaps. Right? Okay. Yeah, but you can, that's right. Read it that way. As but a, it's coming out of the tradition. Yes, mikvah. It's a ritual bath. A ritual bath for the, the washing of sins is how John interpreted it. So the way he was using it, it wasn't related to ritual purity. So mikvah had been related mostly to ritual purity. John was using it in relation to moral purity. So it was a different sort of twist. And we could argue that that's not so different. Not okay. uh, because, because one of the modern conceptions that we have about ritual and moral realms being separate is not mm. true about Judaism in that period. We, that's a modern division Within, okay. that, that moderns make. And going back, that separates ritual from ethical, whereas uh, in rabbinic Judaism, they're clearly uh, okay. uh, it, intertwined. So yes, you could argue that it was new, but you could also argue that it was, an, it was a spiritual revival movement in that ferment of the first century Jewish community. And that's also how we'll begin looking at Jesus, that Jesus and John were both part of revitalization movements within their tradition. And just for con historical contextual reasons, the writings of Josephus, mm -hmm. were they the ones that were found 
in the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, no, they were preserved all along. We never lost the writings of Josephus. I see. Yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls, we'll begin to look at that. Um, they were related to the community that we call the Essenes, who were a yes. sort of ascetic separatist movement. They're, yeah. Jonathan, you mentioned that the Immaculate Conception is not historical. Could you define what, in the context, what you define as Today we're speaking as historians. That means that we are making some assumptions about natural law. <laughs> so, as historians, not as religious thinkers. So today we're speaking as historians. Uh, so that means that as historians, we make an assumption that people are born by the union of a man and a woman or by sperm meeting egg, and that they're born and then eventually they die. So that we, as historians, we are treating the rest of the stories about Jesus not as myth meaning as falsehood, but as myth meaning the attempt we do as religious and spiritual people to embody spiritual understandings in narrative stories. Right? Did the Red Sea split? As an historian, I say no. Right? As a religious thinker, I say that's our way of telling a truth about the human condition. Is that, is that helpful, Jay? The thing is, any, any incident could be debatable then. Yes. Mean, I, I yes, any incident could be debatable. The crucifixion historical. Yeah, so all is these the things certainly could be. The crucifixion is probably historical. The resurrection, from an historian's mindset, is not pertinent because it doesn't fit our understanding of human experience. However, that doesn't mean it's not meaningful story. Or that something didn't happen, even though we may not have a window onto what exactly that was. Right. And to, so, a point of clarification also, the Immaculate Conception isn't a doctrine related to Jesus in the Christian tradition. Right. Jesus, it's the virginal conception. So he was conceived by a virgin. The Immaculate Conception is a later, later doctrine related to the Virgin Mary. And it means that she was born without the taint of what later doctrine would develop as original sin. So Immaculate Conception is about Mary. The Virginal Conception is about Jesus. But I'll repeat this again. We are not here to trash religion. We're both, we're both religious leaders. We're here to, be as, to think with you as sophisticated people about how we can differentiate between what might be historically, based on our experience, historically realistic versus what becomes the spiritual interpretation of those events which are then translated into stories, which is how human beings since the beginning of time have tried to explain our inner lives by telling stories. So, so the stories of the virgin birth, they show up in the later um, Gospels of Matthew and Luke. It's not present in John, the latest Gospel. It's not present in Mark, the earliest. And the earliest layer of the New Testament, the epistle writings, mostly of, of Paul, there's no mention of a virgin birth there. And when he does mention Jesus' birth, he says, he was born of a woman under the law, and he just basically says it was commonplace. Um, so most contemporary Christian scholars would say that the stories of, of the virgin birth are uh, attempts to understand the way the Spirit of God was alive in Jesus. So Mark's Gospel opens with the baptism of Jesus, and at his baptism, uh, Jesus sees the heavens torn open, a vision of a dove descending, and he hears a voice, You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. So in Mark's Gospel, that's when he's sort of um, commissioned, anointed. Uh, Matthew and Luke say, 
well, this must have been true from the beginning. So then they tell a story about his birth. Um, and again, how was God so powerfully in, in Jesus? You know, so there's a story about the virgin birth. John's gospel, the latest, pushes it all the way back into cosmic history and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. So, so you see a progressive movement um, back in the gospels in that way. But when we look at just the, when we look at what we can know historically, we begin with Mark's gospel. We begin with the baptism by John because it was an embarrassment for early Christians. Uh, the the story was Jesus was without sin. So what's he doing getting baptized by John, who's preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins? Um, Apparently, this baptism was such a part of the collective memory about Jesus that it couldn't be done away with. They couldn't just write it off. Everyone remembered that it happened. So you see them hedging in the gospel accounts saying, John, when Jesus goes to be baptized, John says, no, I shouldn't baptize you. I'm not worthy to you know, untie the thong of your sandal. Um, so that's why we tend to think wow. this really happened. It happened because they were embarrassed by it. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't. Yeah, Angela relating to that point is what was it um, what was going on in the Jewish community right so that's that 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 called Jesus to be baptized what was it that 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 he felt what was going on what what's in the milieu that says it's time to be baptized and repent we, we can't, of course, know psychologically what was going on for Jesus in his right, personal what's life. what's going on what, with the people. What we know, and this is again where Josephus is helpful. Um, one, we know that the Judea that Jesus was uh, born into was under taxation by Rome. I'm going to stand back up because I can't see everyone. Um, <laughs> Jews were existing in a context of double taxation, a very sort of oppressive uh, system in which, one, there were the normal tithes that were to be paid to the temple that they felt were binding. At the same time, empire, let me see if I took a note of when, when the empire, so in 63 BCE, so essentially 60 years before Jesus was born, um, the countryside, Galilee and Samaria and Judea, all came under Roman, Roman domination. Um, Roman taxation was imposed, and because there were already the local Jewish tithes imposed, it was pretty unbearable. People couldn't live under these conditions. Uh, you weren't producing enough food for yourselves because you were given you know, half of it to the temple and half of it to Rome. Sorry. That's okay. Maybe so, it's your granddaughter. So, <laughs> so there were different movements uh, that were responding to this situation of crisis. How do we be Jewish? Um, do we become lax in our Jewish observances and we don't pay the temple? Or do we become lax in our Roman observances and we risk getting killed? And so Josephus records a few different responses to this. One were the Essenes. Oh, that's nice, Ellen. That's a good idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> We can take turns. You oh, can have this. That's up. okay. Um, can I interject for a second? Yeah, please. Uh, so he, he's doing a great job. In the first, Thank you. yeah, in the in the first century, not only is there the economic burden of having to support the temple in Jerusalem and Rome, there's also the fact 
that the high priesthood has basically become what what do you call it when it's something you a position you can buy. Oh, right. Not nepotism, but... Um, uh, no, from, but, from, you know, and so, the cent- so there's a lot of corruption in the center of Jewish life in Jerusalem, and a lot of disgust and dismay circulating, and this has been going on for quite a while, because prior to the 63, when it became a Roman province, it was the Hasmonean uh, kingdom, and they were, they were despised by the by the uh, the people, so there's a lot of ferment in all kinds of ways, economic and also spiritual and cultural. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the other thing that just popped in my head. You, you said, "How can we also know that he was crucified?" Is that also perhaps made up? Um, so this is part of the historical Jesus question about what can we know. Uh, it's recorded in a number of the Gospels, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who was then governor of Judea. Um, Pilate, we know, was governor between 26 and 36. That's in Roman records. So we know that he died between 26 and 36. Um, it's also in some of the infancy narrative accounts told that Herod was, was king at the time, and Herod died in, I want to say, 4 BCE? Correct. So, so that would imply that Jesus was born sometime around the end of Herod's reign. But if we can't assume that the infancy narratives are historical, then that sort of is not helpful data anyway. The Pilate dates are, are helpful, that Jesus died. That's why we say roughly around 30. It falls between Pilate's um, governorship. Um, again, why do we think this is historical? Also because it's embarrassing. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, the leader of your movement is crucified as a criminal. That's something that you don't just make up for, for kicks, you know. It's, uh, so some scholars will joke that the only two things that we can know historically about Jesus are that he was baptized by John and he was crucified by Rome. <laughs> you know? Um, but, but were you going to... To jump back into these groups, so Jewish groups were... Uh, responding to this Roman situation in different ways. Um, how do we maintain identity, um, our identity boundaries, and uh, what some scholars call the, the politics of holiness, which holiness has always been part of the Jewish tradition, uh, the politics of holiness, that we, we need to maintain our, our ethnic purity or our ritual purity um, to maintain our identity. And different ways of maintaining that emerged. The Essenes were one response, and they were essentially a separatist movement. They said, we have to move out from under Roman occupation. And so they moved out into the desert um, near the Dead Sea. And Matthew, they not only moved out from Roman occupation, they moved out from what they considered to be a temple that had become uh, ritually and ethically corrupt. They felt the only way we're going to save Judaism is by getting out of here. Right. So the temple is also corrupted by the Roman system because it's collaborating with Rome. Um, so, yes, we've got to start a whole new Jewish system outside of, of Rome. So that's one response. And, and wait for a time when we can go restore okay, it. Right. So that's a separatist response. The other, the other group that we talked about last week were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they focused on really uh, being a, a kingdom of priests. And they wanted to restore, they focused on maintaining uh, ritual purity and on uh, temple tithes, your, your, what were you going to... Well, ritual and ethical purity. Yes. Uh, 
Yeah, it says in Exodus, you shall be unto me uh, a, um, a, a, a nation of, uh, what's it? A, a nation of priests. A nation of priests. A kingdom of priests and a holy people. Uh, so, so they were focusing on what they needed to do to create a, a container so that they could maintain the ethical and ritual boundaries of Judaism under Roman rule. And more or less they, it might not be fair to say they were all collaborators with Rome, but they, they, didn't, they, they, they didn't try to come out from under Rome. And as, you know, as needed, they, they paid their taxes to Rome. They were trying to work within the system. That's right. So that was one response. While maintaining their separate identity. Yes. I, I, have, I don't know if this is off topic or not, but what I question is, what did Judea have that Rome wanted? Why were the Romans in that part of the world? I, I want to say it was in part a buffer zone between them and the Persian Empire, and they didn't want Persia to come in and take over, and so they needed to maintain the Judean countryside as that buffer to Persia. Is that... That makes a lot of sense to me. Because it was not big, there was not heavy metals, there was not jewels, it was not... No, it was a major conduit. Silk roads ran through. Oh, yeah. The reason that land has been fought over so long, remember the maps of the Fertile Crescent? Yeah, yeah. So it was a place where people traveled from the Tigris and Euphrates through to Egypt, and it had ports to the rest of the Mediterranean. So it was strategic in that way. Okay. I know you're not going to get into this, but um, there were many Gospels. Yes. And the ones that survived were those four. Just like in the Torah, there must have been many little stories. Yes. And then when they put it all together, some of the stories were left out. So, and I, I don't, yeah. I know you. I think we'll to get there. to that. No, that's okay. the, definitely worth getting to, and it's true. There were many early gospels circulating. Um, uh, a lot of them are later second and third century texts that were attempting to fill in the gaps that are in these Gospels. You know, there were gaps, and let's, let's fill it in. Well, what about Jesus' childhood? So then you get Gospels that tell stories about his childhood. And often a lot of the Gospels that were left out, they were left out because they were so fanciful or fantastical that it was obvious they weren't historical. There were two gods. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but yes, there was a lot of diversity in that sense. And we'll, we'll look at one text, the Gospel of Thomas, which is relevant to the question of the historical Jesus. Um, this may be, be a very naive question, but what distinguished the, the Jews from the Christians before Jesus stepped into the picture? Well, there were no Christians before Jesus stepped into the picture. There were no Christians. There were no Christians. So, so then why were they treated differently by Rome? Um, you have to, we're talking historical eras here, so you're jumping ahead 100 years to when their Judaism and this new sect called Christianity, who were all Jews, have parted ways. Right. They were actually both treated horribly by Rome. Right. Okay, so it wasn't just the Jews who were getting the extra so, tithing. So, so oh, no, 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 you so have to back up, back up. Back up, back up. Back so back up. Christianity doesn't exist at this point. There are only Jews, okay. and then within Judaism, there are different responses to the situation of Roman oppression that could be seen as revitalization or purification movements within, reform movements within Judaism. Right. And so these are some of those responses. Um, the other one I wanted to mention... Uh, let me say, what, yeah. the historical Jesus, as much as we can know, is clearly a Jew. A That's rabbi. it. Yeah, a rabbi. A rabbi, a Jew, a who's, preacher. Who's founding a revitalization movement, gathering disciples and... and um, an itinerant preacher, a healer, um, a Jew. And uh, there's no such thing as Christianity. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. 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 
Christianity is the result of people cl- taking Jesus as their right. savior. That's what I thought. Right. After he dies. Okay. I, 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 as you said, I lost a hundred years there. Yeah. <laughs> Here. It's important, I think, just to say it for once. Jesus was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died as a Jew. Right. That's it. Yeah. Jesus was a Jew. Yes. Yeah. No question. And, and yes. Here in the. That can be the takeaway from today. <laughs> that he was a rabbi, that caught my attention. Because when I hear somebody's a rabbi, to me that means they're a priest, that they are ordained in some way. Mm. Um, and, but that doesn't seem to be the... But, there, but the, on the other hand, there seems to be a lot. There were like 30 years that we don't know about. That's John Prine has a song called Jesus, The Missing Years. Yeah, right. 30 years between when he was born and when his, his ministry began. We don't this, know what This is one of the key things that Christians and Jews get confused about because rabbi means teacher. Oh. Rabbi is not a priest. Has nothing to do with the priesthood, in fact. It's not hereditary, which was the traditional priesthood down from Aaron. You became a rabbi by being ordained that means having hands laid on you by your teachers when they felt that you had learned enough and were ready to become a teacher and uh, adjudicator in the Jewish people. So um, in modern times, especially in the West, rabbis have taken on many of the characteristics of ministers and priests because Judaism has adapted to the Western model of how organized religion works. But I'm still not a priest. In other words, as a Jew, any knowledgeable Jew can perform a wedding. Any knowledgeable Jew can perform a funeral. Any knowledgeable Jew can speak from the uh, podium or read from the Torah. I have no priestly function. I am not a mediator between my flock and God. That is a key difference between Judaism and Christianity. And one that actually carries over from temple-based Judaism into Christianity. The, the concept of priesthood comes from Judaism into Christianity and then falls out of Judaism right. after the temple is destroyed. Is that helpful? Yeah. yeah. So Jesus, by calling him a rabbi, it means that he was a, he was a religious teacher in <coughs> the Jewish community. And the way we think of a very formed um, rabbinical Judaism today with rabbinical schools and, you know, it would have been much looser at the time of Jesus. There wasn't this, probably the same formal education. Well, there was the well, same formal... I mean for Jesus. There was this, oh, well, we don't know. By calling Jesus a rabbi, we're putting him in a category. But he, he may not have been a rabbi. He may have been a different category of, say, a word might be of an itinerant preacher who's going around telling inspiring stories of a healer and wonder worker. Uh, uh, Because to be a rabbi, there were lineages that you studied under and grew up in and then moved up in, based on your merit, essentially, moved up the ranks to more and more prominence. So calling Jesus a rabbi is shorthand, but not necessarily accurate it meant teacher. The Gospels use it as in the generic sense of teacher. Um, what do we know about John? Oh, over, yes, yeah, you've been trying to... Why did the Jews not accept Jesus as the Messiah? Oh, well, that's a question we need to get into. when We, we do want to spend a lot of time talking about Messiah. Um, maybe to do a really quick side tangent... Um, Jesus wasn't the Messiah in the sense of um, what anyone expected. 
You know, um, Christians used the language in a very different way than Jews initially had used the language. So they both, um, they're both playing different language games in a way. Um, I don't know if I want to Let's go into save this. It. Let's save it. I it's hope a, you can come back. Whole, it's almost a whole conversation to talk about messianic expectation in both traditions, um, the way the language is developed in Christianity as opposed right. to Judaism. We would need to talk about that for at least the next 30 minutes yeah. to paint the picture. Uh, of that question, which is, has been a question, why don't Jews accept <coughs> Jesus as the Messiah, has been a question used as a bludgeon right. against the Jews. For, so we need to get underneath it and talk about, well, and let's save that for future class. It's on the agenda. Um, just, yeah, Jim. Well, uh, weren't the Cohens um, like hereditary priests in Judaism? Is yes. Said? The word Kohen means priest. Okay, the Hebrew word Kohen means priest. If you want to, J. Cohen is descended from the, from the uh, and he's blessing us all, is descended from the priestly caste, because before Cohen was his last name, his family was known in Europe as so-and-so, the Cohen. Right? That's what I thought. Okay? So, Cohen means priest. The priestly caste was a hereditary caste, who were in charge of the temple. Okay. When the temple was destroyed, they lost their power base and their function <clears throat> in Jewish society. Because their whole power base had been the temple, where the treasury was, where the, where, sacrifices, where were the sacrifices took place, where people made pilgrimage to. When Rome flattened the temple and burned Jerusalem, the Cohen caste, the priestly caste, lost its power base and its function. In Judaism, they were retained with honorific uh, um, status. status. They're called up first to the Torah, but they had no power base or actual religious function anymore. That Judaism went through a radical democratization at that point. That was what we know as Judaism's response to the destruction of the temple. When was that? 70. Oh, that was in 70. 70. Remember that date. <laughs> it's the date everything changed. Right. But Jesus okay. lived before Jesus that. lived before that. Okay. Hold on one minute. Christianity took a different route. They took the status of priesthood, which had been hereditary, and made it into a leadership position that was not hereditary. That was based on training and uh, being raised up by the community. So whereas rabbis, Much more like a rabbi. Right. So whereas rabbis became the leaders, de facto leaders of the Jewish world after the destruction, when Christianity, the when Christianity became its own entity, they did not adopt the rabbi model. They inherited and took with them the priestly model. It's really and a you, fusion of the two models. Yeah. Right, yeah. but if you think about well, there were also priests who were rabbis. Um, if you think about um, what happens in a, in a Catholic Mass, in terms of there being an area of the church where the common folk do not go. Holy Holies, altar, tabernacle. Altar, tab They modeled the church on the temple. And there were areas that were off limits to everyone except the Kohen, otherwise known as what? The priest. The priest. <laughs> Christianity took that template and made it their own in a way very different than what Judaism wound up doing, which was 
turning the home into a microcosm of the temple. That's the Jewish way. The Sabbath table is our <coughs> sanctuary. Everybody becomes a priest, as it were, in Judaism. And the synagogue becomes another microcosm of the temple where there's an ark in where the Torah scrolls are kept, just like there was in the ancient temple, an ark where the tap tablets of the commandments There's a curtain in front of the ark, which is like the curtain that masked the Holy of Holies. There's an um, eternal light above the ark to remember the perpetual light that was kept. So each tradition took the motifs of the temple but adapted it in dramatically different ways. Christianity also has the light that hangs before the tabernacle that's left burning. It's, our worship spaces are in similar in remarkable ways because we're both patterning them off of the same original model. Um, Could you please go back to the... Yeah, I, wanted, I want to finish, I want to finish Sorry. that really quick and then... We'll that seemed to be a key piece of information. The, the next bit that... Um, let's see, Josephus talked about Essenes, Pharisees... Sadducees. Uh, yeah, can you say something about Sadducees? Yes, when Josephus talks about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who are also known as the rabbis, the name Pharisees is a Greek version, because Josephus wrote in Greek, of the Hebrew word parshanim, which means those who separate themselves. Or, and, and the understanding is, you shall be to me a nation of priests and a holy people. The, the, the Pharisees, the rabbis, were trying to create a separation between themselves and secular Rome and hold themselves to a standard that they felt was the highest Jewish standard of Jewish teachings, and they call themselves the Pharisees in Greek, or the Parshanim, or the rabbis, or the scribes in Hebrew. The Sadducees is a Greek version of the name Tzadok. Tzadok is, was a, a priestly clan that had come to be dominant in the temple hierarchy. So, Hereditary. Yeah. Yeah, the, Tzadok, the Tzadokite clan, since the return from Ezra's return, had been the dominant clan in the priestly hierarchy. So the Sadducees aren't, aren't movements in the same way. They're a clan. They're a hereditary clan. These other two are actually movements that people could join in. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, the, the third response... But it would be yeah. the, Sad, the Tzadokites, the Sadducees, along with their... Their entourage, people, yes, all yes. the folks who, who worked who for them. reinforce their, yeah. their power and their, yeah. Right. Um, the other group that Josephus talks about are uh, a resistance movement that was essentially violent in nature. So these are um, violent resistance movements. Um, zealots, uh, uh, there's a group called the Sicarii, which meant dagger men. And these were people who wanted to maintain Jewish identity by violently overthrowing Roman oppression. Right. So you've got a group that's resisting by leaving, by getting out of there, a group that's existing by sort of staying integrated but preserving identity, a group then, we'll just say zealots, um, who are now violently resisting. What was... Right. Someone compromising is what. Oh, yes, yeah, you could say you could. Yes, well, the zealots would. I would say use the word rest. accommodating, trying to accommodate Roman rule and maintain their ancestral ways. So the zealots would say that these people are accommodating, that they are, um, you know, and so then all of these though are working with what 
what we could call, when I say politics here, I'm talking about the way human community organizes itself, not politics in the term of contemporary politics, but the way human community um, organizes itself. So politics of holiness are sort of what identity is based on here. How do we maintain our set-apart identity? Um, then another movement begins, and you can see Jesus is a part of this. It bases an identity, and, and here's where we have to be really careful. Christians like to say, there were all these movements, and then there was Jesus who did this radically different thing that's just unique to Jesus. Instead, we've got to put Jesus in the context of another stream of Judaism that's happening at the same time, that and Jonathan can say something about Rabbi Hillel, but Jesus is in a, a line of teaching that's very similar to Hillel's teaching. Ah, there's a little confusion here. Hillel was the leader of the Pharisees. And, and Jesus, it's often thought that Jesus was probably, possibly schooled initially as a Pharisee. Um, and that's why he perhaps has such strong critiques of the Pharisees in the Gospels. But uh, the movement he begins, it's really dominated by what is sometimes called the politics of compassion. Um, <coughs> which Hillel is very much in line with. And an example of this is, rather than politics of holiness that are about maintaining the, the purity <coughs> boundaries of your identity, um, Jesus tells the parable, some of you will remember, of the Good Samaritan. And uh, Samaritans were considered dogs. They were, they were sort of heretics. They were people who claimed the Torah, but they had their own version of the scriptures. They saw Mount Gerizim as holy, not Mount Sinai. Um, so they were seen as... No, not Mount Sinai, not the mountain in Jerusalem, not Mount Orion. Oh, yes, yeah, right. Gerizim is up in the north, uh, near Nablus, Shem, and that was their holy mountain. So, uh, sort of, we could see them today as kind of, or they were perceived as almost heretical, schismatic Jews who were no longer truly Jews. Sure. And we can talk more about that, but that's, that's good enough for now. So, Jesus, uh, he tells the story of uh, a man who's been beaten and he's laying on the side of the road, dying. And uh, a Cohen, a priest, walks by. On the road to Jericho. On the road to Jericho, on the way to the temple. And he walks around the man and goes on. Because to touch him would uh, corrupt his ritual purity. And he's on the way to function at the temple. And then the next person who passes... I don't remember. Is, is, it's a Levite? Would a Levite be the same as a priest? Then? A Levite were, worked for the priest. Okay, so then a Levite passes... Anybody named Levine... That's from the Levite. Oh, uh, yes, there's Karen Levine. Okay, so you and Jay. So, so then in this, in this parable, then the Levite passes, does the same, moves around and goes on. And then finally, the Samaritan passes, and he bends over, he helps the man, he bandages his wounds, he takes him to an inn, he says, um, you know, whatever he needs, I'll, I'll cover it. And so Jesus asked them, who, who was acting truly like a neighbor? Because someone asked, what does it mean to be a neighbor? Um, and of course, the example is the Samaritan. So when he does this, he's, he's shattering the, the conceptions of identity politics that are based on purity. And he's creating an identity politics based on compassion instead. Nicely put. Nicely put. Now, to, to, to just to, to make it so that you'll know it's not neat, Hillel. Yes, Jesus wasn't remarkable entirely in this. He wasn't the first person to think this way. So I want to tell you a little about Hillel, because it pertains to the historical Jesus. Hillel was a Jew 
from Babylonia. We don't know much about him, just like we don't know most people's biographies from this time, unless they were royal, um, who came to Jerusalem as a young man to study in the academy there, to study, academy is a good word, to study in the academy. And he rose rapidly to the top. Uh, in the descriptions of how the academies were set up, the, there were backbenchers and then closer, and you, as you increased in your learning, you got to move up benches, you know, towards the front of the classroom. Anyway, Hillel moved, Hillel moved up to the front of the classroom quickly. Hillel was such a compelling leader that he became the founder of a rabbinic dynasty. So I said it's not hereditary, except in this example. The son of Hillel, whose name was Gamaliel, became the head of the academy after Hillel. And after Gamaliel, there were, there, it's, it's a lineage that went on for um, uh, uh, several centuries, actually. So Hillel's teachings, Hillel died somewhere between 10 BCE and 10 CE. In other words, Hillel died right around the time of the birth of Jesus. By the time Jesus was growing up, Hillel's version of Judaism was the dominant Pharisaic or rabbinic version. Some of us know some of Hillel's formative central teachings. Let me share them with you so that you understand that the politics of that, that this idea of politics of compassion was not Jesus' invention. Hillel's most famous saying is, well, several. One is, do not judge another until you have stood in his place. And Jesus echoes this in his teaching and says, do not judge unless, lest you, you be judged by the same measure, echoing Hillel's right. teaching. Hillel said, be a disciple of Aaron, one who seeks peace and pursues peace and draws people near to the wings of the Creator. Okay, so that's a famous Hillel teaching. Another of his most famous teachings is, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? That's Hillel. Hillel said, in a place where there are no human beings, strive to be a human being. Okay, this is the quality of Hillel. And Hillel's most famous saying is that when a Gentile came to ask him to teach him the Torah while standing on one foot, Hillel said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. The rest is commentary go and study. Right? Now, the context of these sayings is we can learn more in the stories about Hillel, which are historical, which are not, we don't know, but which paint a picture of someone whose counterpart, Shammai, who, has the, who, who also has an academy, and the two of them are the, the, the leaders of the rabbinic community, where Shammai tends to be strict and also somewhat, uh, um, what's the word, classist, class-oriented, you can tell from his teachings, Hillel's stories are always the opposite. Always. Where someone comes with, to Shammai with a stupid question and Shammai says, get out of here, I'm busy. <laughs> Hillel will give, and there are several examples, a compassionate answer to a stupid question that sends the person away to learn more 
And then they come back later and say, oh, if Hillel had treated me like Shammai, I would never have discovered God. <laughs> right? So Hillel becomes, not just, becomes the model for Jesus and for the rest of the Pharisaic community. That doesn't mean that there aren't the, the, the usual, you'll find them everywhere, hypocrisies of people trying to be holy, right? Of people trying to show how ethical they are. Of people trying to, you know, this is the human condition, right? Spiritual teachers try to cut through that, don't they? Unless they're also lost in that same self-aggrandizement, which is true of many spiritual teachers, right? Uh, remove the speck from your eye before you remove the, the log, log from, from your, your own eye. You remove the speck from someone else's eye. Right. So you will find in a study of first century Jewish sources, you will find in almost every case of Jesus' teachings a counterpart in other rabbinic teachings. So Jesus' particular teachings do not explain why ultimately a new religion formed around him. He That's not to say to... that his teachings aren't incredibly important and inspiring, but do you see the distinction I'm making? And he seems to have had a great mind for synthesizing the best of the teachings that you could categorize <coughs> under this politics of compassion model. And you see the way he's responding in his teaching to each of these groups. So, Essenes, we link Jesus early in his ministry to John the Baptist, who goes out to, to be baptized. John is following an ascetic separatist model like the Essenes. Some scholars have um, argued that perhaps John was an Essene or had been formed in that movement. Whatever he was the hanging case, out in the same neighborhood down right. by the Dead Sea. Whatever the case, he was out of you know out of the city, out in the desert, set apart. Uh, Jesus counters that movement. He actually goes into the towns and begins preaching and sort of flips the separatist model. He starts hanging out with all the people that people who are reinforcing politics of holiness see as uh, really really bad. So he's hanging out with. Um, outcasts, those who are called sinners, those who are called prostitutes, those who are called tax collectors, um, all the people who would uh, make you impure, uh, right. who, would, who would, you know, if you're maintaining identity based on purity, would then, sully right. your reputation or your actual sense of, it. I need to be ritually separated from this kind of banality. Right. Yeah. And so Jesus is constantly in the gospel records crossing those lines intentionally, and so he gets flack for it con uh, constantly. Right. Um, what are the other movements? The zealots, the, the violent revolutionaries, he's, he critiques those as well. And you see um, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, some scholars think uh, Iscariot actually comes from Sicari, that he had been one of these violent revolutionaries before he joined the Jesus movement. Um, you see at one point when they actually come to arrest Jesus, um, Romans, uh, Peter, I think, one of the disciples actually pulls out a dagger and Jesus tells him to put it down and he says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So you see he's countering all of these various currents and taking a stand in another current. It's still a Jewish current. It's still a reform movement within Judaism. He's not mm -hmm. saying, let's stop being Jewish. He's saying, let's be Jewish in this way. Nicely put. Mm -hmm. Question about John the Baptist, which is that isn't it part that there is part 
Did the more and more thought that he was the cousin of Jesus? But is that part of the myth and the storytelling? Of well, yeah, the tradition from the the infancy narrative in Luke's gospel. Um, there's a wonderful story that mirrors uh, some of the older biblical narratives, like Abraham and Sarah are too old to have a child. It's the same with, um, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John. They're beyond childbearing age, and then Elizabeth conceives. Um, she's the aunt, cousin, cousin of Mary, um, cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there's a beautiful scene where they meet. They're both pregnant, carrying the, the prophet who's to be the forerunner of Jesus and carrying Jesus. And it's said that Elizabeth feels John leap in her womb. Um, those are probably, um, you know, stylized narratives. Um, they, they do preserve a tradition in which John and Jesus were cousins. That may not be an historical linking. It may be. Who knows? Um, a lot of scholars would be skeptical of that, that they were cousins. But it could be. Is there any historical linking between Zechariah and John? Uh, Zechariah. And what was Zechariah? Zechariah would have been a priest in the temple. Um, but again, do we know if he's an historical person or not? You know, we're getting into murky territory there. Um, Let me add one other quick thing. So, what's John in Hebrew? Yeah, what is John? Yohanan. Yohanan. That's why there's an H in John. Right? John it's Johan. No, no, not Jonathan. Jonathan. Oh. Jonathan's a different name. That's why there's no H in Jonathan. Uh, it's, uh, but uh, uh, John is Yohanan. What would Elizabeth be? It's a Hebrew name that's been Elisheva. What would Mary be? In it, it's Mary. Greek form of Miriam. Miriam. So I just want to point out that, the, that not, these, these were not the only Jews who had both Greek and Hebrew names, right? This was commonplace. Well, and these, these Jews didn't have Greek names. These are the Greek translations when the Greek scriptures are written. That's right. I mean, right. they may have had Greek names. They may have but, had Greek names, but, but, but their names, these are, these are sort of like standard classic Hebrew names that we don't think of them as, as Jews because they've, been, because they've been Elizabeth and Mary for so long. Here and then behind you and then... So also in relation to the visitation of Mary to her cousin Elizabeth, if we take this out of religious context, a young girl turns up pregnant, yes. but yet married, she gets sent to go stay to with her cousin until she's delivered, and then she can come back. And to protect her from being stoned to death Absolutely. as an adulteress. Yeah, that's certainly what's happening in, in the story. She's being sent away, you know, so she can deliver the baby and then return home. Uh, yeah. At the risk of being obvious, all of this that happened a long time ago is very similar, and I wonder if 2,000 years from today, people are going to be studying this time, you know, when, and I don't know what the format will be then, but they'll say, well, there were these Jews who thought the best thing was to follow a letter of the law. Right. Extremely pure. Then there were these the Orthodox and the Reform and the Reconstructionists. Renewals, and they just wanted to sing and dance. And <laughs> right. So, yeah. What do we what do we do when we try to tell a story? We have to have um, we have to have clear like characters. Otherwise, it's too hard to follow. That's how we tell our own life stories. 
Yeah, oh, these she's... roofs need to oh. clean as we're painting them? Probably not. My yeah. sister was the good one, and I was the dead, and we get labeled by our parents with identities, and this is the way stories are told. So we have a challenge, which is to hear stories and then, uh, and then understand that they're trying to um, um, uh, map out the human situation, but then what we wind up doing is we wind up applying those categories strictly to people when the actual situation is always more complex. <laughs> Quickly, uh, if you change the word map out, which is very literal and very good, because it puts us in a position with our feet, and you start saying, inspire us. Because history oh, nice. was not really about literalism yeah. until the 19th century. Right. History was really about inspiration. Yes. That's why we can look at a story about Moses, or about David, good or bad, right. and say, it's inspiring. This yeah. is interesting. And we use the story, therefore, on many levels. Beautiful. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the intelligence of the people who are writing some of these stories. The author of Luke's Gospel, for instance, may have well known he, or, or maybe she, was using metaphor, you know, in writing these infancy narratives. You know, that author might have not thought, I'm writing literal history. It was later people who then projected that onto the text. Possible. Um, Gabriel, you had a question way yeah, back. I was just curious, it's like I'm changing the subject, but we've talked before about Jesus as a rabbi, and I'm curious what the historical accuracy is of Jesus as a carpenter, which has also been... Oh, good so question. What's the historical accuracy? We've talked about Jesus as a rabbi. Um, we often talk about him as a carpenter. What's the historical accuracy of that? Um, there are two words used in relation to Jesus that... Tecton is the word in Greek. Like tecton? Tecton, like T-E-K-T-O-N would be a transliteration. Tecton. Um, so he was a high-tech guy. High-tech guy, <laughs> right, right. Working for Apple. Um, so Mark's gospel refers to him as a tecton, and I want to say Luke's or Matthew's refers to him as a tecton's son. So we have reference to him either as a carpenter or a carpenter's son, if we translate it carpenter. Um, Different scholars translate this word in different ways. Like what? Do you remember? Artisan. 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 Sometimes like it's... Ah, uh, right. uh-huh. Artisan. That makes sense. Well, there was more back then, but yeah, artisan. That's good. I've, I've heard, Angela. My understanding of it was um, because of the way the houses were built, um, it was more like a, a, a adobe fixer. Oh, okay. Oh, uh-huh. And, 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 and a stucco he, expert, and drywall would, guy. They would move, he was itinerant. Right. So there, there was a, a, a city that was being rebuilt. So they would, yeah. They so would some kind move. of skilled laborer, and it's vaguely interpreted in different ways. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. I read something recently. I'll have to look it back up. I can't even remember what it said, but it said it was also used metaphorically to reference da 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 da, and I don't remember what it was, but I remember thinking that's interesting. The Sufis do that. I mean, this is later history, of course, Muhammad much later, but in comparative mythology, the Sufis actually believe the word carpenter is a secret word. Ah. And it means a certain kind of inner secret teacher. Sure. Well, that's interesting, but I have a different uh, take on this which I just realized, which is that the, the Pharisees were very clear that you could not make a living out of teaching Torah. Uh, so you had to have a... And so we know the trades of all of the ancient rabbis because they get talked about. Mm -hmm. This one was a blacksmith, this one was... So, and then there were some, like Gamaliel, who was independently wealthy, he was a landowner, 
And so he was able to devote himself full time. But he gets harshly criticized by Joshua the blacksmith for the way he's not sensitive to the needs of poor people. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I, I just, I just so realized this. I would say that Jesus being a tecton and a rabbi is completely <coughs> ordinary and expected at that time. It says he who makes a crown out of Torah or makes a living from teaching Torah is... Right. This, they did this. So again, the professionalization of the rabbinate is a 20th, 19th century phenomenon. Um, and again, it's hard to think about how dramatically rabbi, the rabbi role has changed over the centuries, especially in modern times. So that's, my, that's, that's a great takeaway for the day. Jesus being a carpenter or an artisan would be entirely expected in the circles he was going in because he would not be making a living off of his teaching. And Paul, who was a Pharisee, was a tent maker. A tent maker. Right? A tent maker, right. yeah. And a rabbi. Yeah, a rabbi. Um, Some of them are named like Jacob the Sandler, Sandlar. He was a shoemaker, but that's how he's referred to in, in, the, in the rabbinic text. So uh, the, the other thing I want to look at, when we talk about what can we know about the historical Jesus, again, we have these gospel accounts um, we can't know with accuracy that any one given saying goes certainly back to Jesus, um, but it's, most scholars would say we can get a fair sense of uh, the general, general gist of his teaching, that different communities were preserving these traditions. There are a lot of overlapping traditions across the Gospels, so we can get a, a fairly clear picture, if, if not you know, a, a word-for-word accounting of his teaching. So what are the general sort of broad brush strokes that we can um, identify the historical Jesus as? Um, and the categories that, um, and this typology I want to say goes back to uh, New Testament scholar Marcus Borg, who just died this past year. He says, one, and we didn't put this up here yet, one, he was a revitalization movement founder or a, a reform movement founder. So I'm gonna just put reform because this is a shorter word. Reform movement uh, founder. Two. But, uh, uh, Matthew, I think reform, we might want to say. Maybe revitalization is better. Yeah, because it was a spiritual re- revitalization. Yes. Right. So he wanted to, here, he saw a Judaism that had gotten too attached to form, and he, like others, impulse was to try to revitalize that form. Right. Um, like Zalman, like Zalman yeah, Schachter, yeah. yeah. There have been, re- like, like Hasidism was a revitalization movement, but also there were revival movements so throughout Jewish history. We could call it a renewal movement even, like Reb Zalman. Right. Um, two, the other category, and we often sort of shy away from or overlook this today because of our, our skeptical modern minds, but he was a healer and an exorcist. The Gospels yeah. are filled with stories of Jesus healing and exercising demons. As um, is the Talmud. Yeah. Other rabbis had these, right? This was, this was a huge current uh, within a, a sort of charismatic first century Judaism uh, that was very <coughs> connected to the world of spirit. Um, some of the other figures roughly contemporaneous with Jesus, uh, Hanina Bendosa, was one of these charismatic Jewish healers. And a lot of the stories are very similar to the stories of Jesus. And interestingly, in that charismatic stream, uh, there are other, um, I just read this last night, Hanita Bendosa had a vision in which um, God called him his son. You are my wow, son. Wow, I didn't know that. And so this tradition of um, son of God being used in a, in a much broader generic sense 
in, in first century Judaism. Excuse me, doesn't that contradict what you said, Jonathan, in that Keilah and Exorcist is not a historical thing today? We don't see it's not a historical. You, we do see plenty of healers in Exodus. We see today. Absolutely. So, so it, not a, okay. it, well in the Jewish. So, but Jay, you're confused. You're confusing my categories. So let me clarify. It's an historical fact that there were people who were accepted as exorcists. And who people in their culture and community experienced. They experienced an exorcist. As think of an exorcist. Think of a a shaman. Think of a a. a a, 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 um, um, a society unlike our, our, our secular society, but you don't have to go far to find a church where they're practicing this, you know, besides many doors, uh, where um, people are under, understand themselves as being inhabited by spirits and that the, 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 the healer exorcist, exorcist can actually cast those spirits out. To, to say that Jesus was an exorcist, to, no, no, I'm not to saying say, that it's verifiable that they actually cast spirits out. Yeah. I'm saying it's verifiable that they existed and that people followed them and and believed in them. To say that Jesus was accepted as an exorcist isn't to comment on the the reality or unreality of demons. It's to say that he was accepted and experienced as an exorcist. It was a job description, right? In ancient, in, in ancient everywhere. So, so this, this again links into a stream of first century charismatic Judaism that was popular and widespread. Um, he was, and what a lot of contemporary scholars say is that Jesus' story, the stories of healings that run through all four of the gospel accounts, that these also relate to the politics of compassion as opposed to the politics of healing. Because the people Jesus touched in healing were people who were considered ritually unclean. Often they had something like leprosy or blood hemorrhage. Um, so to touch them would make one Beautiful. unclean. So these people were set outside of community. You know, you had to go around shouting unclean and no one could touch you or come in contact with you. Um, so some contemporary scholars make a distinction between uh, healing an illness and curing a disease. And illness encompasses the psychological uh, component of, of well-being as well. And they would say that perhaps while Jesus uh, maybe didn't actually cure a disease, he in part healed their illness by welcoming them back into community. And, um, and he was often, uh, in the stories, in the accounts, he was critiqued for, for healing these folks. And uh, particularly, there are stories of him healing on the Sabbath. And that was considered work. And so he, he heals someone with an, a withered arm in one of the accounts, and he's critiqued for this, and he says, um, they say, he says, isn't it not permissible to do good on the Sabbath? If your oxen had fallen in a ditch, would you not pull it out, even if it were the Sabbath? And, and he says a teaching that is a quote from Hillel, uh, the Sabbath is made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. Actually, not from Hillel, but from a, another another oh. parallel source. Okay, you know, it was a, it was a saying extant in uh, the Jewish world at the time. Right. So again, placing him in a certain street. Um, but th that's one of the categories. He was a healer, and what, however we understand healing today, whether or not you believe he could literally heal, um, in those acts of healing, he was taking a stance against the politics of holiness as separation and purity from the politics of compassion. Uh, but there is historical evidence he, he healed lepers. No, no. Those are, there there no, are stories no. about him healing lepers. Let's try lepers. this again. 
we know, because there are other sources that describe itinerant healers, that there were people who went around, the, who would go around from town to town and were ascribed to have powers of healing. And people would come to them to be healed. No, we're not saying the stories are, uh, of what he actually healed actually happened. They we're saying, have, but we're not commenting on that. Yes. Okay, okay, but I, uh, can I add a piece of background to that? Uh, which is that Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, is preoccupied, and biblical Judaism, are both preoccupied with ritual purity. The Bible is very clear that if you come in contact with blood, blood being the life force that's given to us by God, that it doesn't belong to us, and that if you come in contact with blood, you need to go through a series of rituals that involve a lot of bathing, but not bathing for physical cleanliness, but for uh, spiritual cleanliness. Um, that's where the word mikvah comes from. It's why women, after they've completed their menstrual cycle in Judaism, go to the mikvah for a cleansing, right, so that you can be reintegrated into the community. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, throughout Jewish history, and we can see it today in many Jewish communities, many of those rules can, in certain times, trump human kindness, right? Because, yeah, and that's a confusion between function and form. The function of the ritual is to remind us that all life belongs to God. But it becomes a form that rules us where we forget what the function was, which was to be servants of life, right? So Jesus can fit into a, 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 just an understood category, easily understood by me, of wanting to get through our thick skulls, that it's not the form that counts, it's what the form is supposed to be reminding us. And that's a problem with culture, not just religion, with culture throughout the ages. We confuse the form for what its function was supposed to do, which was to uh, remind us how to behave. And I would say it's a fair thing to say that Judaism in the first century and today, as well as many others, need this critique constantly. We need to constantly be critiquing ourselves about when our attachment to form makes us forget what the function of the form was supposed to remind us of. So that's what I wanted to share. So you had a whole group of people who had become outcast because they it wasn't a menstrual cycle that was you know gone it was once a month it was like one woman comes in and she's been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years so for 12 years she's been existing outside of community so all of these healings a lot of them are healings of long-term illnesses so the point the gospel records are making are that he was integrating people back into community who had been left on the fringes of community which was a very Jewish thing to do when you study the laws in Leviticus all the laws in Leviticus, all the rituals, are designed to integrate those who have had to be, for whatever ritual reason, quarantined, back into the community. They're not, they are not considered morally, um, uh, what's the word? Um, reprobate, they're not considered, they, they, they are in a temporary condition, and the purpose of all these rituals of, of bathing and healing was to reintegrate them into the community, and it would appear that maybe they weren't being treated the way that they were supposed to be treated. And Jesus was showing people, hey, you know, I, I like that. I like thinking about it that way. Then he's my rabbi. Right. Yeah. 
Um, certainly, everything all of these groups were doing was political because it had to do with how human community is organized, structured, uh, called into being. So Jesus' actions were inherently political because they took it took a stand in relation to um, Jewish temple hierarchy. They took a stand in relation to Roman government. Um, so yes, you could say he was a political revolutionary. Um, <coughs> You could say you could say the Essenes were. You could say the the Zealots were. There was a particular question though that that he was attending to the outcast meant he found another oh. lost group. He could yes. enlarge his, his group. Okay. If he was bringing them. Bringing in the outcasts. Sure. So he, in the gospel accounts, uh, he's itinerant. So he's not stationary. He's not building a localized community, but he is moving and and building pockets that are 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 following his interpretation of Torah or his message. Um, so, uh, so yes, you could say that his movement was largely made up of people who otherwise were considered reprobate or outcast or um, sinner. But were they, were they reprobate because they had bled or touched the life source, God? Mm -hmm. um, were they morally reprobate because that happened or was it a matter of just removing themselves from that and coming back into community? I'm not sure I followed you, Angela. Uh, I think I did. Go ahead, say it again. Say it again. It were, were these people, because they had a, because she was hemorrhaging. They were unclean. Were, 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 were they morally reprobate? Well, I think Jesus is saying them, they're not. But, yeah. but, but, but. They, there's Leviticus is all bringing them back into right. the community. Right. So at what point are they morally reprobate? Why are they? Are, I don't think I they? don't think they are. They I think yeah. I think it's okay. the natural human tendency to exclude. Because someone's saying I'm clean, stay away yes. from me, or else you'll have to do the same thing with me. Say I don't even. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Is, yeah, I don't know enough. That's my question. Yeah, but I would say, for what I heard, you said he's, he's not trying to create a separate movement. I don't think there's any indication in the Gospels that he is trying to create a new movement or a separate movement. He is speaking, he is speaking within the context of the Pharisaic community. He's arguing with the other rabbis about what the right thing to do is, which is the Jewish way, right? And uh, uh, Hillel and Shammai argued over the right way to do things and had countless differences of opinion. So I would say it's the... I, I would say it's a, it's a, it's a it's, it, I think it might be fair to say that the reason the Pharisees become the villains in some in all the Gospels or some of the Gospels more or less in all the Gospels is because I, it was an intra an intra family yeah. struggle, the where where this group who had been rejected this group of who had decided to follow Jesus we'll talk about this in a future week who had been rejected by the rabbinic. Uh, uh, leaders uh, turn turn on them and make them into the ones to be rejected. Uh, I don't think Jesus was trying to start another movement. I think Jesus was trying to revitalize, mm -hmm. heal within the context, and he certainly had some, I would say, uh, uh, new teachings to offer. So it wasn't a moral judgment about the the evil of the person. No, no. 
It was more a, a ritual judgment, but that, that, that judgment of unclean, when it was a, 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 not a temporary but a chronic illness, then excluded them long-term outside of community. You know? But also imagine how different that mindset was from ours today. We're talking about healers and exorcists and how hard it is for, for many of us to wrap our minds around that. Uh, there wasn't a clear delineation between ritual and moral Corruption. Corruption. In other words, in other words, it's clear from the from that 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 from Jewish interpretations that external blemishes and corruption of the skin would reflect an internal corruption. Now, think about mind body healing today. It's not that radical, right? Think about uh, addiction and mental illness. I'm, just, I'm all I'm saying is that we in we are both the heirs blessed and cursed with secular historical bias, right? Which means that we ignore or we discount the spiritual, the systemic, the integrated reality. The, and so we're forced to, so back then, they, that was not, that was not, our point of view was not predominant so that someone, so that there would be a conf, natural confusion or Confusion is my biased word again. A natural understanding of the integration of spiritual, physical, moral, and uh, you know, and that illness would be related to. It's funny how the Romans were more modern. The Romans were more modern. The Romans were more skeptical. The Romans and uh, yes, the Romans in many ways were more modern. Well, it, we we demonize what we don't understand. We don't understand mental illness, and so it's very easy to say, oh, those are the crazy people, you know, mm -hmm. and we make fun of them and we stay away from them, because they're scary, because we don't mm -hmm. understand it. And I guess what I'm saying is that we want, we want to put Jesus into a category that we can claim, mm -hmm. and we're not going to ultimately succeed. These will be helpful pointers, <coughs> but we are not going to be able to recreate the context in, Gal in rural Galilee, where he was wandering around, any more than we'd have to be an anthropologist in a certain way, to go live there for a while and try to get what's going on, just like we'd have to do in many, many cultures today that are remote from us. Let me just round this out. I'm not going to even say much more because we're coming down on time probably, but the other categories that, that were used as types for the scene Jesus was working in, one was sage, that he's working in the Jewish wisdom tradition, so he's not merely an exorcist and a healer. He's also a wisdom teacher, and most of his teaching are parables, aphorisms, sometimes almost like Buddhist koans. You know, they're wisdom sayings about how to um, lead and live a transformed life. Right. Then the other category he sometimes put in is, is prophet, that he stood within the prophetic tradition within Judaism. Um, you had some interesting oh, words so on that yesterday. A little more about well, that. I, I questioned that to Jonathan. I said, but Jesus, you know, he didn't speak in the way the prophets do within the, the Hebrew scriptures, which is often a thus says the Lord kind of voice speaking in the first person for God. You know, it's almost like you're reading something channeled. You know, you're, a, you're, a, speaking. you're a spokesperson for right. God. And Jesus in the gospel records doesn't speak in that way. He speaks in parables and stories. And so I said, does it make sense to put him in the <coughs> prophetic tradition? And Jonathan said, well, yes. Well, yes and no. Yeah. Because, and this is fascinating, um, the, in, in rabbinic Judaism in the first century and in the se several centuries preceding that, it had been understood that prophecy 
the role of the prophet had ceased in Israel. That Malachi, the final prophet around maybe the year 400 BC, was the last who said who was an oracle, a mouthpiece for God and for the covenant of Sinai. And since that time, Judaism had reinvented itself as a scripturally based tradition, where what God's where where teachers would interpret God's word. And so um, this, be, this poses a problem in rabbinic Judaism because people are always having divine inspirations, right? So to say that prophecy has ceased, put them in a bind. They came up with, the rabbis come up with new words, such as being infused by the Holy Spirit, yes. right? That's a rabbinic term. The Ruach HaKodesh is a rabbinic term to try to account for divine inspiration when we can no longer say a prophet in Israel because, that, because when it became a literary-based a literature-based <coughs> tradition, that became the conduit for divine knowledge and understanding and wisdom, which is to say that I talked about how the rabbis were a radical democratizing force on the one hand. On the other hand, they were also the keepers of the text and of the interpretation of the text. So they also had their own power base, which they were interested in, pro- in promoting. Which Jesus seems to critique explicitly in respect to the scribes and Pharisees. That's right. one of the critiques. That's one of the you're critiques. Holding, holding the keys to knowledge and not sharing it. That's right. That's right. So, again, we see human nature at work. But, um, uh, so, Jesus speaks in parables and uh, in teachings. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, and as it says in Scripture. And then we'll, we'll go on that, right? And, he and, is functioning as a rabbi. And he, sometimes it will say, when he will teach, the crowds will say, he speaks as one with authority. Uh, he speaks as one with power. And so there is a sense of you know, being empowered by spirit clearly, and teaching. Clearly, there's an understanding that somebody's got the spirit, right. the Holy Spirit, right? That comes from that period of time. So because, they, because the rabbis defined prophecy as a category of the past, um, and uh, they had to find new ways to describe inspiration in, in the present. I have, I have a question. So, according to the Gospels, was there any time that Jesus, as this force, looked to, um, from, his, from his mouth, pull people away from these other groups and kind of say, follow me? Well, or was it always that the people said, Wow, you know, I, I need to hear more of what this guy Both. Was um, some of his early followers, it's explicitly stated in the Gospels, actually joined his movement from John the Baptist movement. They had first been students of John, and then they became students of Jesus. Then often it's just people joining him as he's teaching, and often he calls, well, the, the stories are he calls people. Some of the early disciples um, are fishermen, and they're out fishing, casting their nets, and he calls them and says, come and follow me. Oh, so he does, there is that aspect. There is the, the calling. <coughs> yeah. now, I just remembered. Is that usual, though, in looking at the way we Well, I'm just remembering some Talmudic stories Good. where one, one rabbi says to another in this who knows, you know, I'm just remembering the story and I don't remember the details. You know, I'm an expert in the teaching of the, of the details of the law. I'm a legal expert. And you're um, um, a storyteller. 
There were different kinds of itinerant teachers. They would go, they would, there was a circuit. And he says, you know, when I come to, to synagogue in oh, such yes. such a town, there's like 10 people there. And when you come, there's 300 people there. Yeah. You know, because the storyteller is like the... So we can tell from stories that itinerant preaching and teaching was something that happened in the synagogues. And there are certainly clear stories in the Gospels about Jesus getting up in the synagogue and teaching. Opening and teaching. a scroll and reading. Yeah. He reads Haftorah in one of the stories. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a... Uh, well, it's... We talked about this too. I want to say it's in Luke's gospel. He goes in, and Suzanne, you'll remember if this is actually Mark. He goes into it's the Luke. synagogue, and it, Luke goes in the synagogue, and it says he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath as was his custom. Uh, so making it clear that he was a regular attender at the synagogue as was his custom, and then uh, he opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he he reads from the the scroll. Um, anyway, it's a wonderful little. Uh, contextualizer there that shows that he was he was participating in synagogue observance. Were there um, temples and shuls in, in little villages like little parish churches, or would he? I mean, or would he have had to go to a larger city to do that? I'm not the best person to speak on that. I've read that um, archaeological digs haven't yeah. turned. You jump in, yeah. Mm. Well, well, uh, archaeology. Uh, what were you going to say about the well, that, that where Jesus lived haven't turned up much evidence of, of synagogues. Um, but well, not of synagogues from the first century, but synagogues from the third and fourth centuries. Okay. The galley is dotted with, well, with re remains of what were clearly synagogues. So in first century, do you have any sense of what synagogue practice would have been like and how, how widespread the synagogues here's, were? Here's my sense of it. Um, because also in places like Gamla, in, in some of the ruins from the... Revolt in 70. Masada has a synagogue that's clear. Gamla does. So it appears that in addition to the focus on Jerusalem, over the centuries of um, the, over the centuries leading up to the Common Era, establishments called houses of study or synagogue just means in Greek where uh, the people come together. Gathering, gathering place. Uh, came, uh, were being built all over the place. I just want to say, what about like his um, increasing the loaves and fishes to feed the multitude? Uh, repeat that louder. Oh. So, uh, what about the stories of him uh, increasing loaves and fishes and walking on water? Uh, so, there are different sort of classes of miracle stories in the New Testament. One are the, the healing and exorcism stories that that really have some sort of historical context. This was happening in Judaism, whatever we make of it. Um, this was a, a movement, and uh, I tend to think that today we have a pretty reductionist worldview that discounts the, the realm and reality of spirit, and that perhaps it's, uh, there's a little more going on than we imagine right. often. Yeah. But um, those, those miracle stories uh, fit within the tradition, and then there are these larger ones where he takes um, two loaves of, uh, a loaf of bread and two fish, Suzanne? Five. Yeah, five. Oh, see, I should know this. I have a, uh, yeah. five loaves and two fish and multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. Um, another story where he's out with the, the disciples are out on a boat and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and, um, and then Peter steps out, walks on the water to him and then he begins to doubt and he begins to sink in the water. Um, okay, so. Yeah. Okay, so these motifs we're going to talk about next week because we're almost out of time. But, for example, 
the loaves and fishes. It says in the book of Kings about Elisha the prophet, how can I set this loaf of bread before a hundred people? So he, Elisha, repeated, give it to the people and let them eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Mm -hmm. So he set it before them, they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So in the 7th, 8th century BCE, there, this story exists already. So what we're going to talk about uh, also next week is that the life of Jesus in the context of a Jewish people who, for whom the Bible is their book, that his stories that grow up around him are him repeating the motifs of miracles that have happened in, that are Torah stories. Right? So Jesus' life, as it gets, as the decades pass after his death, gets developed into motifs that we will recognize from earlier in the Torah. In other words, he's a Jewish creation. And, and it, it's often said that while Jesus told parables about the kingdom of God, the, the early Christians told parables about Jesus. And so I would say some of the really extravagant miracle, miracle stories, it's, it's perhaps a better context to read those as parables that the early Christians told about Jesus rather than as historical narratives, and that they have symbolic or metaphorical meaning for the Christian community. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the healing and exorcism stories I'd put in a different camp than the, yeah. the grand things. Yeah. Uh, walking on water. Here's what it says in the book of Kings about Elisha. And his axe head fell into the water. So Elisha cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron head float back to the surface. <laughs> okay, that's in the book of Kings, in the Old Testament, right, in the Hebrew Bible. So these are motifs, not to mention Moses putting his staff out and making the waters part. So having control over waters, like... Right, Jesus in another story calms the storm. You know, there's a horrible storm raging down the water and he says, you know, peace, be calm, and the storm stills. So. Yeah. Um, Rabbi Jonathan, uh, you, you said about halfway through this class uh, the difference between what um, Jesus taught and, 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 and the roots of Judaism are not enough to explain um, the split. That's right. Yeah. When are we going to address that? How about next week? How about next week? But <laughs> should we, you know, one of the big splits is around um, messianic identity, which... which Let's talk about Messiah, messianic stuff next week. N too. Next week we said we were going to talk about the teachings. We started getting, we didn't get explicitly into the teachings of Jesus. Part of what we wanted to do was actually take some of the teaching stories and parables and compare them to um, equivalents like we're doing so, here. Um, so we could do some of that, but we could also spend some of the time looking at why this uh, issue of messianic identity led to... I think that's timely. ...to the bifurcation. So what I want to... Yeah, oh, yes, Troy. Can we just throw in that uh, aside from the prostitutes and all the marginal people uh, in Matthew, I think it is, when uh, Matthew asks him, who are we? Who are you? Who are yeah. you? And he says something like, you know how when you go to a dinner, who sits at the table and who goes around right. running? It's a, it's a Roman thing, actually, the running servant. So he said, who goes around walk, running around and who's sitting? And Matthew answered, well, the, the man of the house is sitting and the other is a servant. He said, I've come to be the servant. Right, I've come not to, to be served, but to serve. But to serve. But the other thing is women. In the story at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, it's an incredible story because it does bring women mm -hmm. into that area. Not that, not that as Jews were against women, obviously, no. and that in the Torah there's not all these women, but there is something about women 
in Jesus' relationship. He's often crossing culturally expected boundaries in relation to women, um, as well as other groups of people. And the Samaritan woman says, why are you talking to me? To me, Alone at the well, alone. Yes, it would have been scandalous, yeah. Yeah, we can look at some of these. Beautiful. Let me add something to that, which is that the, the Jewish community in Judea, including Jesus and the rabbis, are dealing with an in Roman, Roman occupation and rule. And not just occupation and rule, but Roman civilization, in which there are slaves who run around and there are people reclining on couches. I mean, in eating grapes. So if you want to know why we recline on Passover, what the custom comes from, it's because that's what the free people could do. Right? In that context. Uh, that's why it's, these are all critiques on Roman critiques and, and uh, gr- uh, takings in of Roman civilization. And so a lot of um, the, 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 the Pharisees, the rabbis, have a severe critique of classic Roman <coughs> civilization. The bathhouses, the excess, the, the, uh, the vomitoriums, the, the forced slavery, the, the way they treat people. And the rabbis and Jesus also define, the Judaism that gets defined and the early Christianity that gets defined, is it also a response to the excesses and the inequalities, inequities of the Roman uh, world that they occupy. So that's the whole, so in addition to the critique of G, the, that early Christians make of the Pharisees, the whole system is a critique uh, uh, and a response to uh, what they consider to be the inequity of Roman rule. Karen? Is there somewhat of a split then between the rabbis as being a more urban movement, whereas Jesus is a more rural hmm. It gets talked about, but I don't know if it holds. Um, that, that, but yeah, um, I think Bruce Chilton's book, which I read a few years ago, called Rabbi Jesus, sees him as perhaps an illiterate Galilean itinerant preacher who comes, you know, and mystic visionary who comes into this urban society and is, is critiquing it. Uh, but there's plenty of, there, there are plenty of rabbis who are cited as being from this town or that town. You saw some of them when you were just in Israel. So I, I don't know if it's fair to call it urban. Many of them were farmers. Um, uh, Jesus I, was moving largely through small towns that weren't well known. And next week we'll pass out a, a map and you can see some of the little towns, but they weren't places that were well known or well remembered. And probably some of them wouldn't be remembered today at all if they weren't named in the gospel records. Um, you know, and we think he was from... We'll, we'll go into this next week, but okay. from, yeah, yeah, I won't go. Okay, so this. since it's time to stop, o'clock. I want to give you something as just reading material, if you'd like. So this comes from a book by Rabbi David Zaslow, who's a wonderful rabbi out in Oregon, called, who's been doing interfaith stuff for decades, called Jesus, First Century Rabbi. And he's written, I really recommend this book, I'm in the middle of it now, because it's written for a popular audience, and it's written for Jews and Christians. Um, he's doing a good job. So what I photocopied for you are excerpts of a couple of charts he made comparing Jesus' teachings to contemporaneous or earlier Jewish teachings. So things that will be familiar to you so, so, that you can, so that you can get a picture of the context of his teaching. So this is available. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, pass it around. and you, I'll, I'll leave it up here, and you can come get it. Uh, our announcements. Diane? I'm asking for a ride for somebody to... Uh, Albany, are you teaching a, a class?
class on Jewish mysticism. Oh, right. Starting and next week. Invited? You're all invited if you want to schlep up there. Okay, good. Then if anybody's going, there's a woman in Woodstock who doesn't drive, who wants to go. Let me describe that. So um, I, was the, I, was, I, was, I had a great weekend up at Temple Israel in Albany last spring teaching, and they asked me to come back. So I'm doing three Thursday nights starting next week. Uh, on introduction to Jewish mysticism. I called it demystifying Jewish mysticism. So three classes, three Thursday nights. It's on the Lev Shalem Institute website. You can get the information there. And there's someone here who'd like to go. So if anyone is interested in driving up to Albany, uh, you can let me know. Um, also, we've got uh, next Tuesday night, um, Pauline and I are having a, a really great group of people. This course called Pathways into Jewish Prayer. The topic this coming Thursday is using chant and using music and poetry. Tuesday night. Tuesday night, sorry, Tuesday night at 6.30 to 8. Uh, you can find all that on the website, too. And an opening? Sunday is the opening, 12 to 2 for this show. Small works. Art, small works show. There's a number of uh, members who, who are represented been. here. And uh, so 12 to 2 will be, uh, you know, a opening. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Ellen. On Sunday, November 15th, the Jewish Federation of Ulster County is sponsoring our second annual Jewish Day of Learning down at SUNY Ulster. It's all day long, and uh, uh, teachers from all over the, the local Jewish world are going to be teaching, including Carol, uh, with a sampler uh, preview of the Torah of Broadway that's going to be the December right. weekend. There's a flyer out on the table there. Uh, Pre-registration is strongly encouraged. Number one, you'll save some money, and number two, we'll be sure we'll have enough food. And it's, it's not an all-day thing. It's wonderful teachers. Yeah. What's the date on? Sunday, November fifteenth. Um, are there flyers out there? Yeah. Good. And flyers for the workshop. Carol and I will be teaching the Torah of Broadway at, during Hanukkah in December. We are so psyched, and Bonnie Meadows doing it with us. Okay. Uh, yes, Ruth. To which, to this gathering or to? Okay, we're trying to be, we're trying to uh, make it possible for people who are chemically sensitive to come in here. So yes, if you avoid cologne or perfume, that's really great. Matthew, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Here's the readings that I'm recommend that I made for you. I'll pass them around. I have that, right? Do I have that? If you took it. Yes, I have it. How about these maps I just leave here and we can pass them out next week? Yeah, just one out back there.